0: Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for this opportunity that you have given to us on this beautiful fall day to assemble together with Christian women, women we have come to love and to pray for, to know, to cherish. Women who also love you, Lord, and that's what bonds us together. Thank you for the fellowship that we have together in the gospel Thank you for your precious word that tells us about you. Thank you that you are, Lord Jesus, a high priest who can empathize with the feelings of our infirmities and with the distresses that we go through, the, the trouble that enters into our heart as we walk this life, that you can understand because you designed us, you created us, you know the human heart better than we do. We don't know our hearts because they're deceitful and desperately wicked but you know us and you know the right words to give us words about the future that give us comfort for the present and as we look at those words some of those words today some of the most comforting words that you have ever given to us my prayer would be that the holy spirit would use them to indeed settle our troubled hearts because i dare say there's not one here among us who does not have some kind of Situation in their lives that brings them trouble. So comfort us as you can only, as you alone can comfort us. And we will give you the praise and glory for what is accomplished here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you want to open your Bibles, would you please, and I hope you do want to open them, (laughs) open up to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. This is going to be lesson... Number 149A, you might want to write that. (laughs) Well, you don't need to on your notes because your notes cover everything. But this is going to be a part A and a part B, comfort for troubled hearts. The disciples of the Lord Jesus had great reason to be troubled as they sat with him there at the Passover-turned Lord's Supper table on Wednesday evening of the Passion Week. A number of things had already taken place that very night, uh, things that would disturb any group of men or women in their shoes. Divisiveness had set in among them early in the evening, probably as they came into the upper room to take their seats around the Passover table. They had then been humbled, greatly humbled, as the Lord taught them a strong lesson about their selfishness as he bent down and wash their feet. And then he had announced that one of their own intimate group would be the instrument of betrayal. He had then predicted that all of them would be offended because of him that very night, and all them would sh- uh, scatter as frightened sheep. He had even declared that Peter, who appeared, at least on the surface, to be the strongest of them all, he had proclaimed that Peter would deny him three times again that very same night. He had talked about his departure from them, and he had said that where he was going they could not follow yet. And his separation, I think of all the distressing things they had heard about him that night, His separation was the hardest for them to swallow. His separation from them hung heavy on on their hearts. And then when it was the moment uh, as the Passover host for him to take up that third cup, remember the cup of redemption, he had said these words. He had said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. And after that, he had taken up a piece of that unleavened bread and said, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, hearing those, those words are familiar to us, right? Very familiar. But imagine hearing those words for the very first time These men, for these men. Those words sounded very gloomy to them. It sounded just like death, blood, my blood, shed, my body, given, remember me, do this and remember. I mean, sounds like death, doesn't it? Why does it sound like death? Because it is about death. So the Lord's upper room discourse, the introduction to which we have been looking at ever since we were in John 13, verse 31 And it will continue till the end of chapter 16. And even some have included the high priestly prayer in that discourse. But this discourse, his farewell discourse to his men, was designed by the Lord to meet his men at their need at that particular time. And their need was one of needing comfort badly. So we now enter into the body of the discourse and the body of what he had to say to them. So we're going to begin the body of the upper discourse. Everything we've read before this was introduction in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 14. And I don't know how many of you have memorized this, but this is one of your homework questions is a challenge to memorize these three verses because if you will memorize them and hide them in your heart and say them to yourself when you're troubled and distressed, they will bring you comfort. Let's see if you can say them with me. I'm going to try. (laughs) I might have to look down. But let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there ye may be also. Did I mess up? Come again. And receive, I will come again, and receive you unto myself. Ah, that's an important part. (laughs) That where I am, there ye may be also. Very good. You did better than I did. Thank you. There are many reasons, many reasons for being persuaded that the Bible is the Word of God. Many, many reasons. Don't ever doubt the Scripture. The more you study it, the less reason you have to doubt it. It is God-inspired. But someone long ago said that one of the reasons we can know, not just hope, but can know that the Scripture is God-breathed, is because it is fitted to every single nook and cranny of the human heart. In other words, it satisfies our deepest longings. It seems to know us where we are. It's a living, breathing book. How can a book know us so well? Because the author knows us so well. He created us. It is ideally suited for every single aspect of the human condition. We have an outstanding example of this in the passage before us, the one we just recited. This is the passage that addresses what kind of hearts? Let not your heart be troubled. This passage addresses troubled hearts. When we read the opening words of the Lord's, this part of the discourse, let not your heart be troubled, immediately he has our attention, doesn't he? When you read those words, let not your heart be troubled, he's got my attention Because I don't know of a day in my life that I don't have a troubled heart. Now, I shouldn't have, but there's always something going on that is stirring up my my heart, my emotions. Every single one of us, raise your hand if you you don't know what a troubled heart is. (laughs) Anybody? I'd like to know what your secret is if you you can raise your hand. But every one of us knows what it's like to have troubled hearts. At the beginning of the previous century, the 20th century... The focus in medical research was on bacteria, but at the end of the 20th century, the focus of medical research was on mental stress and anxiety and its effects upon the human condition. Unfortunately, I hate to say this, but unfortunately, the problem with anxiety is almost as common among believers as it is among unbelievers. And that is a sad statistic. And it's a very poor witness to the world, isn't it? John Wesley said that he really didn't know which practice dishonored God more. And think about this. I'm not going to give you the answer, but it's one of your homework questions. Think about it. What do you think dishonors God more? To worry which is to doubt God's love and care or to curse and swear who dishonors God more the unconverted man who uses profane language or the converted person who worries when Christians are filled with anxiety we are doubting God's providential, sovereign care over us and over every aspect of our lives. We are also doubting his genuine love for our welfare, and we are doubting his wisdom in matters, right? When we worry, we're doubting his sovereign, providential care over us. We're doubting his wisdom and what he's allowing to happen in our lives, and we're doubting his genuine love. Lord, where are you? Don't love me if you're letting me go through this. So which do you think is worse? Uh, John Wesley didn't know, but he wondered about it. It's surprising that we Christians are so often anxious. Didn't the Lord say, remember what he said to Martha? You're you're troubled about many things. (laughs) And uh, didn't he say, be not anxious for anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving? Have you been able to thank the Lord? You know, just give your petition to him and thank him for the way he's going to answer it. And that settles you down. Don't be anxious. Just give it to him and thank him for however he's going to answer it because you know ultimately if you know God is sovereign, he's going to work it out for his glory and your ultimate good. But it is, it is surprising that we are so often bent out of shape and anxious and fearful and dismayed and distraught and troubled because really when you stop and think it through, There's little reason for us to be that way. Of all people on earth, I mean, other people, if they're not saved, they should be troubled and anxious and worried and bent out of shape because this earth is the only heaven they're ever going to (laughs) know. And that's sad. But we should be the most joyful the most confident the most peaceful and assured because we are the people who have experienced the miracle of God's regeneration we are literally new creations in Christ we possess the spirit of God in this same chapter he's called the comforter he indwells us the holy comforter we and he possesses us we have the scriptures we know what it is like to have our sins nailed to the cross and the burdens of our sins lifted and to be washed in the blood of Christ. We have the assurances that our every need will be supplied. Not our every greed, but our every need. And that we need not worry about these things at all. That if we seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, then what? All these other things, our needs will be Naturally added unto us. That they come just as naturally as God takes care of the birds. Does He provide for the birds and give them food? Do they worry about where they're going to get their next meal? And just as naturally as He gives sunlight and water to the beautiful lilies of the field. So how is it then that we are so often troubled and worried and distraught What is it that does this to us? Well, it is often the same for the same reason that the Lord's disciples in the upper room Wednesday night were extremely troubled on this, their last night with Jesus, which, of course, they didn't know was their last night. You see, their problem was that the Lord was introducing them to some things that were totally unexpected. Do you like unexpected things? You like phone calls in the middle of the night? You like going to the doctor and hearing about something totally unexpected? mm -mm. No. Even though he had said some of these things previously to them, they had paid very little attention to them. They had gone on naively, as oftentimes we do, waiting for all things to continue the same as, as they are and even get better. They were expecting things to get better, weren't they? Kingdom, thrones, etc. And they therefore willfully dismissed those things that did not fit with their preconceived ideas on things. And we don't like things to come unexpected, you know. We expect everything to go smoothly, and uh, when we're young, we're going to be healthy, and we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and then we're going to get married, and our marriage is just going to be a, a bowl full of jelly. <laughs> no, jello. <laughs> Roses, dead full of roses. (laughs) Wow, I'm mixing up my little (laughs) cliches. A bowl full of jelly roses. (laughs) And that nothing's, you know, we're going to have these perfect little children that are always going to obey, and we expect everything to just get better and better and better, right? Does it work that way? Mm mm. No. Uh, You know, they were going on naively, and they didn't like it when all of a sudden he told them. Earnestly, Now, he's very earnest with them, and he's very, he's very direct and clear. He's told these things, you know, I'm going to die, I have to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over, I'm going to be crucified. A, he's told them before, but now time is extremely short, and he's urgent. They have progressed through the Passover supper. He has by now instituted a new memorial celebration for them to observe called the Lord's Supper. And uh, there is every expectation in the atmosphere in that room of something pending. And their hearts are deeply troubled. They've gotten it. They understand something is not good here. The blood, his body, you know, death, we're scattering. Peter's denying there's a betrayer. Everything is coming together, and they're troubled. They're as troubled as they have ever, ever been. And the Greek word for troubled... Is it, it even sounds like trouble, doesn't it? Terrazzo. And it literally means they were stirred up and shaken. They were agitated. They were tossed about. There is a sense in which their whole position has been shaken. They had left everything, hadn't they? They had left everything to follow him. They'd been following him for some three years, at least. They had burned their bridges behind them. Is as, it is as if everything has been abandoned that they had built on. He was going to be separated from them. What would they do without him? They'd be in danger. If he was going to be killed, they'd be in danger too. And they loved him. Life was wonderful with him. They just did not want to be separated from him. And very often you and I find ourselves in the same position. What we have anticipated... They were not anticipating his departure. They were anticipating him staying with them, setting up the kingdom, them having great positions with him, and everything being hunky-dory. That's what they were anticipating. But uh, lots of times what we anticipate does not take place. The unexpected occurs, and our world in just a matter of seconds can be totally turned upside down. But does the Lord know it all? Does he know? Does he know about those midnight calls? Yes, he knows it all. So he deals with the inner man, the condition of the inner being. And we, he's talking to his men, but you and I are so privileged to have these ministering words that he gave to them that we also have them for us. He is the master teacher who knows the human spirit, and there is nothing more ideally suited to a troubled heart than what he has to say, not only in these verses and in the verses that follow, but really on throughout the entire um, discourse, even into his high priestly prayer. He is concerned about comforting his men, the spirits of those who are his. So things are quiet. As I said the Passover is finished. They've eaten their big meal. He's instituted the Lord's Supper, which shocked them. And now everything is quiet, and he has the un- undivided attention of his men. And notice what was the first thing he he did to calm their troubled hearts. The first thing he did was d- to direct them to faith, which is the only way that you and I and they have at our disposal to relate to God and to his son. The only way is by faith. As the great physician, which he is, he spoke soothing medicinal words to them that would minister to their great mental and spiritual needs. He said, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Let me be very frank with you, and I always like to use that expression since my husband's name is Frank. That was the first thing he ever said to me the night I met him. He came up to introduce himself to me and he said, let me be frank with you. It was so corny, (laughs) but I fell for it. So let me be frank with you. Your troubled heart, your troubled heart is never, never going to be calm. Your fears in this life are never, ever, ever going to be dispelled You are never, ever going to be at ease in your spirit if you are balking or hesitating at believing. Never. There's no comfort for those who refuse to believe. Faith is the only means God has given to mankind to properly relate to him in all circumstances and at all times. If people will not believe him, God... And his son, if you believe, you know, you believe God, believe also in me, then they will not be comforted with the true comfort, the true lasting comfort he alone provides. They will only be able to turn to false and temporary comforts of this world. You know, like a bottle of alcohol or drugs or something. That's the only, and it's just temporary, isn't it? And when you're, when you're done with your buzz and you're high, guess what? The trouble is still there. The Lord has absolutely fantastic, wonderful things to say to his children on how to have true comfort for a troubled heart. But if we will not believe him, then our hearts are going to remain, remain anxious and troubled. From the beginning, from the, this is how it's always been, from the moment of our salvation... When you were first born again, we were set on a path of following, not by sight, but by what? By faith. And that never changes throughout our Christian life until one day our faith is confirmed by sight. (laughs) We will see him and we will be like him. You see, the disciples had become so accustomed to the Lord's physical presence with them, that they had grown accustomed to this as the Christian life. This, for them, was a Christian life. Jesus with us every moment of the day. We can see him. He's always bodily present. We're always in sight of him. We always have him there for consultation. We always have him there to correct us, our wrong thinking and our wrong attitudes. He's always there to teach us and to provide for us and to protect us. But now, the unexpected, now he's introducing them to a new norm which would no longer be by sight, but every step of the way for the rest of their lives would be by, by faith, just as it is for you and I. I've never seen Jesus. Don't tell me if you have either. I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> now, you and I should not have any false expectations. We need to be realists, Okay. We should not have any false expectation on our part because the scripture explicitly tells us that our faith will be tested. It will be tested. Bank on it. Count on it. It will be tested in a vast number of ways. But remember, the trials and the tests of our faith are all God-designed. He has them designed uniquely for each and every one of us. I have encountered trials that some of you have never encountered, and I hope you never do. You've encountered trials that I maybe will never encounter and don't want to. He knows which trials each of us specifically need to test our faith for us to grow. There was nothing, absolutely nothing, that the disciples were encountering or would encounter that was not expected or designed By the Lord Himself. The trials of our faith are working certain things in us, aren't they? I look back and see the trials I have come through that He has been there with me and led me through, and I know they were used by Him to grow my faith. I'm a much stronger Christian today because of those trials than I was before the trials. They proved my faith. So, there was nothing that they were encountering that wasn't designed by the Lord himself. Um, it is by faith that we overcome the world. It is our shield. You know, we're told to put on the armor of God. And what, what is the main thing we need to put on besides the helmet of salvation? The shield of faith. So that when all of those darts come at us from the wicked one, we've got our shield on. And they just bounce off. That's we need the shield of faith throughout the scripture. There is this constant encouragement to relate to God and to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith and not by our circumstances and not by the degree by which those circumstances unsettle everything that we thought was certain and sure. Jesus says to his followers, "Ye believe in God. Say the rest. Believe. Also in me. Hmm. Now when he's talking. He is talking here to his disciples. Right? So he's not talking about saving faith. Bel- you, you believe in God. Believe also in me. Have saving faith in me. We know he's not talking about saving faith here. Because the disciples are already saved. Remember when he washed their feet. And he said you are all clean. But not all of you. Meaning Judas. And he had just given them the Lord's Supper which is only for believers. He's not talking about saving faith. Essentially, we could say that this is talking about trusting faith, pointing to himself as the proper object of the same faith they have in God. And boy, if that isn't a claim to deity, I don't know what is. (laughs) I mean, he's saying, you believe in God, believe with the same faith in me. That is a sure claim to deity. Remember that for those that come... To you, knocking on your door, saying Jesus never said he was God. Here's another one. The scripture's loaded with them. But here, here he's saying, you trust God, trust me the same. You believe in God, even though you can't see him, right? And they would all have said, yes, we've never seen God, but we believe in him. And he's saying, now you must trust, believe in me the same way, because I am soon leaving you. But your faith in me must not diminish just because you can't see me anymore. Actually, he could have gone on to say, and he will when we get into more of John chapter 14, it's going to be better for you guys that I do depart from you. It's going to be a lot better that I am away from you. You know, we might think, oh, wouldn't it have been great to be one of the apostles and have Jesus right there? So when I have a problem, I can just say, Jesus, would you... Tell me what I should do in this problem. There he is right there. But you know what? That wouldn't be so good for you guys. Because when he was here, he could only be in one place at a time, right? So he's ministering to me. You have to wait your turn. (laughs) But when he went away, he could minister to all of us, couldn't he? And what else? What is better about the fact that he's gone? He sent us the resident Holy Spirit, the comforter. And there's a lot more things he's going to tell them. It's better for you guys that I go away. You're going to be able to do greater works without me than when I was here. And that happens too. Our faith not only saves us, that's what initially saves us, but it is what sustains us then throughout the rest of our earthly lives. We must keep on believing, right? Keep on believing. What are we to believe in God and his son? What are we to believe? That they exist? Well, yes, that's obvious course we have to believe they exist you know without faith it's impossible to please God we have to believe they exist but in addition to that we are to believe that God is exactly who he says he is and that he has the relationship to us that he says he has that he sovereignly superintends everything everything is under his sovereign control for the disciples this included even the things that would be taking place in the next few days Utterly shattering to all of their previous plans and hopes and dreams. Yet, even in those things, they were to believe in God when those things took place. And they were to believe in the one they had also put their faith in, God's Son, Christ. You know, the Jewish people, they, they believed implicitly that Jehovah God was always present with them. By and large, most of the, you know, even the Pharisees, they believed in God. And their history was proof of his eternal care and protection. They had faith in the invisible God. So putting himself on the exact same level as God, the Lord Jesus was urging his men and urging you and I to trust him, Jesus, the same way as they trust God. Even... When he, like God, would not be physically present with them anymore. John Phillips says this. He says, quote, trust goes much deeper than belief. I'd never thought about that. Trust goes deeper than belief. Belief can be cold and intellectual. I mean, a lot of people can say they believe in God, right? Just intellectually, yes, I believe in God. But he says, trust is warm and personal. Let me give you an example. I can believe that my son, Chris, is a great pilot. And he must be, because he's top gun and he knows how to fly those awful things. (laughs) fighter jet pilot. I can believe that he is a great pilot. I can believe it intellectually. But when he asks me to get in his plane with him and take me in the air, (laughs) that is... That is trust. That's deeper than the belief, right? Are you following me? To get in there, actually with him, I, I can't. Thank goodness I can't, because it's a single, you know, cockpit, and I can't get in there with him. But that would really be showing my my trust. I really, that would show I really do believe he's a good pilot. Oftentimes, well-meaning people will console their hurting, bereaved. Friends and loved ones and neighbors with the words you know, put their arm around them and say, Everything is gonna be alright. Just believe. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, just just believe everything's gonna be fine. Well, that kind of optimism is just based on kind of pie in the sky wishful thinking. It's no use to say to someone, It's gonna be alright, cheer up. Let not your heart be troubled unless you finish that sentence i think of sean hannity i watch him a lot watch bill o'reilly and then i watch sean hannity and sean hannity has this little section of his program where he always says let not your heart be troubled how many of you have heard him say that he says it every night (laughs) let not your heart be troubled but he stops right there that's not you know that doesn't mean anything it doesn't mean anything unless you finish the sentence Ye believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus Christ. That, you see, links the sentiment, let not your heart be troubled, to omnipotence. You have to link the sentiment to omnipotence. Who is omnipotence? God and Christ. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe in Christ. That finishes it. That's the only way your heart won't be troubled. What what were the apostles to believingly trust in Jesus? Well, first of all, that he was just as reliably trustworthy as God. Therefore, they could put as much faith and confidence in his words and in his promises as they could in God's words. Because really, they're one in the same, aren't they? They were to believe the things that he was going to tell them next. And this is very important. Because faith is not just vague optimism. Oh, just believe. Just have faith. It's not, just, it's not vague like that. Jesus didn't just say, trust me, guys, things are going to work out. Just believe. He got specific. Biblical faith always has an object. And it is definite. It is definable. There is content to faith. It isn't like saying, cheer up, be happy, and then stopping with that. He's not saying that at all. He's giving them content. He's giving them something solid to believe in. He gives them words to trust. He gives them truths to hold fast. He gives them solid facts that are ideally suited to troubled, disturbed hearts. What are those trouble-easing facts? Well, besides telling them that they can believe him as equally as they believe God, he then assures them that God is his father, and his father has a house, right? And in uh, and that his own departure from them has a purpose. I'm leaving you, but I have a purpose in leaving you, and it is to prepare a special place for you In my father's house. Oh, okay, Lord. Thank you for saying that. You're going away. But it's for a purpose. You're not just going to leave us and desert us and forsake us. You've got a purpose in your departure. And it's all about us. You're going to be building something for us. And then he gives them a tremendous promise. In verse 3, he says, He will return to receive them to himself to escort them to their personally prepared places with him in his father's house, and there they will enjoy an eternal reunion. Now, how is that for hope you can believe in? That's real hope you can believe in, and you can believe in it. That is content. That is what gives our troubled hearts peace. Peace. In referring to God as his father, Jesus was again making another claim to deity. Two in a row. Believe God, believe me, that's a claim to deity. My father's house, you know, Jews never called God father because they knew that that was a claim to deity. But in John chapters 13 to 17, Jesus calls God, by that term father, a total of 53 times. 53 times he calls God his father. And he goes on to speak of his father's house. Now, he's not speaking of his father's house in a parable. He's not speaking about it figuratively or allegorically or metaphorically. He is speaking about his father's house literally. He knows about his father's house. Why? Because he's been there. (laughs) He's been there. It's real. He knows it does exist. It exists in another dimension of being. It's called heaven because it is where his father abides. If his father didn't abide there, it would not be heaven. Ever think about that? Heaven wouldn't be heaven if the father didn't live there. There is a third heaven that the natural scientist knows nothing about. He cannot go there in his little spaceships to explore it and come back and confirm its existence to you and I. In fact, without faith, he will never see it. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you're going to believe and accept Jesus' words about his father's house, you must do so how? By faith. By faith. By the way, the only other time Jesus used the term, uh, uh, my father's house, was in reference to the temple when he cleansed it. That's the only other time he spoke of his father's house. Remember when he said, you've turned my father's house into a den of themes? Uh, um I love it when I do that. Thieves. <laughs> a bowl full of jelly. <laughs> it seems, therefore, that God's house in heaven is laid out like the temple. Called the temple his father's house. We know the tabernacle, when he, God instructed them to build the tabernacle, that it was a pattern for what existed in heaven. Um, Isaiah 6-1, when Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord sitting upon a throne in heaven, you know, with the angels saying, holy, holy, holy before him, he said that the Lord's temple, I mean, the Lord's train filled the what? Temple. This is a heavenly scene. It talks about a temple. He says that the house, the temple, was filled with smoke. And he says, one of the seraphim took a live coal from off the altar. So we talk about a temple, a house, an altar. Heaven is designed like the temple was down here, at least the tabernacle. And we know that from Hebrews 9, verses 23 and 24. Now, did you know that there really is not much said about heaven in the Old Testament? Because until Christ, no believer ever went there. Until the time of Christ and his resurrection, no believer. Heaven was only filled with the holy angels. There were no believers in heaven. They went, until Christ, they went to a waiting compartment that was referred to as Abraham's bosom. They couldn't go into the presence of God without being covered with the blood of the lamb. So they went into Abraham's bosom also known as paradise you know there are two compartments to to what was called hades not hell and i know hades has a bad connotation but there was a good part of hades abraham's bosom and then there was the bad part where the rich man went you know and lazarus went to abraham's bosom but there's not much said about heaven in the old testament the light the light about heaven itself was dim in the old testament so it's wonderful Wonderful that the Lord described heaven in the way he did as his father's house because what does that bring to your mind? Your father's house. I mean, that that is a comforting, homey uh, term for heaven, isn't it? Your father's house. That's where you can kick off your shoes. Right, Connie? and Be yourself. <laughs> she knows all about it. She said the other day, I said something like, this is my house, Connie. This is my house. And she said, no, this is my house. This is the only house I've ever known. <laughs> and I got to think about it, She's lived there longer than I have. She's lived there her whole life. Well, no, she and Brad did have a home for three years, right? Four, five? Oh, that long? Okay. But she was born in that house. I mean, that's the only house that I've only been there 35 years. <laughs> but house, a home is where you can kick off your shoes and be comfortable, right? <laughs> and clean and neat. But... Uh, <laughs> Robert Frost said something. I was going, where is it? Robert Frost, you know, he's a famous poet. He said, uh, home is the place where when you arrive, they have to take you in. <laughs> There's a lot of terms for heaven um, in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament. But, but my father's house, his father's house, I, I think that's the best. The thought of death grips men's hearts, you know, with with coldness and... And dread. There's even an instinctive human terror that we have about the grave, but the Lord's words, "My Father's house," ease that dread and fear for the Christian. Heaven. It it speaks of a, a place of hominess. Some of the other New Testament names for heaven are that is called a country. I think that's to emphasize its vastness. It's called a city, which probably emphasizes the large number of its inhabitants. It's called a kingdom, which probably emphasizes the fact that it has structure and order. It's called a paradise, which would emphasize its beauty. It's called a place of rest. It's called an inheritance. But the term that is the most personal is my father's house. Dr. James M. Gray wrote a song with the words, Who Could Mind the Journey? When the Road Leads Home. I like that. I don't know that song. Do you know that, Miriam? We should look that up. I don't know what the song is, but who could mind the journey when the road leads home? Looking forward to returning to his father's house is actually what enabled Jesus to endure the cross and the shame of the cross. It was for the joy set before him knowing he was going to return to his father's house that he endured those sufferings. Well, Jesus went on to tell his troubled men that in his father's house there are many what? Mansions, which um, in the Greek is the word moneh, which literally speaks of dwelling places or um, abiding places, permanent dwelling places. The word is actually much warmer and much homier than the word mansion. The only other time in the New Testament that we find this word monē is in this same chapter, interestingly. If you'll look at verse uh, 23, Jesus answered and said unto them, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Which one of those words do you think is exactly the same as mansions? monē Abode. It is. We will make our abode with now, he's not talking about a mansion. He's talking about we'll make our dwelling place with him. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be greeted by some celestial real estate agent who hands up us a map on how to get to the right mansion. <laughs> and then we jump into a golf cart, you know, that is driven by Peter to take us there. And unfortunately, the word mansion gives us, you know, I've got a mansion just over there. And we all, you know, you picture this great, big, sparkling, palatial place where it's cold and indifferent, you know. I don't know if you want a mansion, but that's not as cozy as a dwelling place in the father's house. The picture is of a father adding additional rooms onto his house, which was a custom in the East. A father, when a son got married, they'd add a wing onto the house. And in, and in Pakistan, too, right? That's what they do. I know Mala told me that in India. They would just add a dwelling place onto the father's house. And then when the next son or, you know, they'd keep adding onto the house. So when we get to heaven, we're going to live in the father's house in a you know dwelling place attached to the father's house. And we'll all share the same patio. I mean, that's a whole lot more. I don't want to be in my old, my big cold mansion down the street. Ten hundred blocks from your mansion and separated from God's house. Do you want us all to be together and it'll be like that? And that's a that's a wonderful feeling. And by the way, will there be enough room for all of us? You know how big the father's house is. Uh, It's um, they've done the here it is. It equals three billion three hundred and seventy five million cubic miles which is and you know that heaven is a big cube it, it's it trust me it's a volume greater than any of us can even conceive heaven is tremendous but the fellowship will be intimate the lord god has always created environments perfectly and ideally suited and prepared by himself for the creatures he places in them think about it how perfect and ideal Did he make this earth before he put Adam and Eve in it? He perfectly made everything. And without sin, I can't imagine how gorgeous. Look at the trees just now at the fall, how gorgeous they are. But Eden must have been just breathtaking. He prepared Eden, you know, an ideal environment and a utopian garden just for Adam to live in. He also prepared the land of Canaan before he brought Israel into it. Like Adam, the Hebrews moved into a land that was full of everything that they would need because God had fully prepared it for them. So Jesus here is speaking of something even better than Eden, the Garden of Eden, or better than the land of milk and honey to which the Hebrews moved in. He was speaking of men being brought into God's own house. Now think about this. Men had not been originally made to live in heaven. When God made man, he did not make him to live in heaven with him. He made man for the earth. He prepared the whole universe just for man to live on the earth. Man was placed on the earth to keep it and to live on it and to multiply on it. But by sinning, man lost the earth. That was bad. That was the evil. Man sinned. He lost the earth. However, here's where God turned that which was meant for evil into good. By sinning, man's sin brought God's Son down from heaven. And at Christ's descent, man is now able to ascend into heaven, which is going to be his new home. You know, if man hadn't sinned, we'd never live in heaven. Have you ever thought about that before? We would live, you know, eternally on earth. Well, wouldn't earth run down, you know, and eventually the sun would explode and there would be no earth? No, because before the fall and before sin, the second law of thermodynamics didn't exist. You know, that's the law that everything is running down and in a state of decay. So we would have lived here. On, this, on a beautiful planet, but we would have lived here. And God would have come down in the cool of the day and walked with us, but we wouldn't have lived eternally with him. So there we are, Genesis 50, 20 again. What man meant for evil, God used for good. And, and now it's the special task of the Lord Jesus to prepare our eternal dwelling places. Who better to build them than the carpenter of Nazareth? He knows all about building beautiful places. And I believe every one of our dwelling places is going to be specifically designed just for us. You know, we won't have to pick out our colors because he's going to know what our favorite colors are. (laughs) And he'll make all the draperies. (laughs) Now, after speaking to his disciples about the many dwelling places of his father's house, Jesus added these words, and I love these. Underline them. If it were not so... I would have told you. If there was no life after death, I wouldn't have given you a false hope. This is just like you and I assure little children, don't we? We assure little children who are troubled and worried about about the lizard in their closet. And we go in and we say, that lizard, I promise you, I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't true, but that lizard cannot eat you. or there's absolutely no giant I used to, when I was a kid I thought there was this monster under my bed it wasn't definable but there was a monster under my bed and so I would never sleep with my hand off the bed (laughs) (laughs) and my mother, you know, come in there's no monster under the bed Kathy, promise you I used to be Kathy. (laughs) And uh, that's how we are with children. You can trust me. I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't so. Just trust me. And that's what he's doing because we're his little children, right? He said, I wouldn't tell you if it wasn't true. He's comforting the troubled hearts of his men with his absolute assurance to them. I promise you, God has a house. I'm departing. I'm going to make that. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. And if it wasn't true, I wouldn't tell you this. He had just told them to believe him as they believe God. He had always spoken the truth to them. Always. In fact, as we're going to see in verse 6, he is the truth. (laughs) What does he say to Thomas in verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth incarnate. He is God. Guess what? God cannot do some things. What is one of the things he cannot do? Lie. He cannot lie. Jesus does not lie because he knew that full provision would be made for both their complete and eternal happiness Jesus encouraged the fearful hearts of his men by assuring them that he would never make up something that wasn't true. He would never allow them uh, he would never have allowed them to give up everything as they had. They left their occupations, their families. He would never have allowed them to do that to follow him and to grow so intimate and so in love with him if their relationship was just going to end. That was going to be the end of it. I'm going away? That's the end. No, his purpose for them, just like his purpose with you and I, was full and rich with ultimate goodness. God's house was to be their permanent home. And the purpose of his departure was so that he could prepare things just for them. That's exactly what he did do. And starting that night, he went to the cross to prepare redemption for them and for you and I. And he would go... um, Out to the tomb so that he could rise from death and prepare the conquest of sin and death and the grave so that a new life and resurrection power would be available for them and for you and I. And then he would depart back to heaven in his ascension so that he would prepare an access into God's holy presence and then prepare an eternal home for them and for all like them who would put their faith in him. And he would uh, be busily, that's what he's doing today, still, busily preparing individually appropriate dwelling places for every single one of his beloved children. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have said it. He wouldn't have said it. He would not have given false hope. Jesus is not in the business of giving false hope. His words are true. His words are utterly reliable. Just as we assure our children, he says, I would tell you if it wasn't going to be okay. But you can believe me, I am telling the truth. My father has a home, there are many permanent places there, and I am personally involved in preparing your place for you. Does that give you, does promises about the future give you comfort for the present? It should. It should. There are these are words ideally suited to comfort the troubled hearts of believers how do these words affect you today Let not your heart be troubled you believe in God believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you will be also does does that fall to the ground for you and not affect your spirit? Do you simply dismiss such a great truth by saying something like, yeah, well, that's okay for the future someday, you know? But today, it just doesn't help me with today and with the trials that I'm facing today. I need to be concentrating on the here and the now, not the there and the then. <laughs> These are things for old people, you know? <laughs> These are things that I, uh, there are things I need to take of care of now. And I have expectations for my life. I've got things I want to accomplish. I I have heartaches that I know aren't just going to disappear just because of these there and then promises. Well, this is exactly where the disciples were. They, too, had certain expectations. And they all had to do with the here and the now. And with earth. And with Jesus staying present bodily with them. And they had things they wanted to accomplish, you know, thrones and seats and enemies being overthrown. They, too, were concentrated on the now, not the then, and the here, not the there. But you see, that was precisely part of their problem. What the Lord was clearly teaching is that there are many things that are not going to be resolved now. There are many things that will not be solved and resolved in in the here and now. There are some things that are just not going to happen now. We have to wait. That's what faith is about, right? Waiting. (laughs) The things that your heart, heart longs for, the ultimate things that your heart longs for, like an undisturbed life where everything is governed in a way that there is not going to be any sorrow, any tears, no regrets, no temptations, no troubles of any kind, that is not going to happen in the here and now. It might for a little while, you know, especially if you're young. Maybe everything's been pretty good so far. But the effects of living in a sin-cursed world will eventually awaken all of us to the sad reality of life in the here and the now. And this is exactly why the Lord's remedy for troubled hearts is to call attention to the then and after, the then and there. That's where our hope is, is in the then and there, and knowing that right now this is all about a trial. This is all about conforming us into his image. It's not necessarily about happiness as much as it is about holiness, is it? Making us Christ like. Notice too that he doesn't describe the Father's house. He waits, he lets John describe that later in Revelation. But he doesn't describe the Father's house here to his men, he doesn't describe the dwelling places that he is preparing. Now we might have hoped. That at this point, he would spend like three chapters telling us all about our future dwelling places. Well, I'd like to know how many bathrooms. (laughs) No, I don't think I'll need a bathroom. (laughs) I'd like to know this and that. But he doesn't tell us a thing about these things because the reason he gives no description is because that is not the thing that will ultimately calm the troubled spirits of his men and his followers. You know, if we heard all about heaven, and you can read about it in Revelation 21, that's not really the description is not what gives us comfort for our troubled hearts. It's the next thing that he said that would bring true comfort to troubled hearts and which he knows would repeatedly comfort the spirits of his followers ever since he spoke them. And those were the words that he will come again. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, what? I will come again. Again, Now, that's really the first time he's told them that. He's told them in other ways that they didn't get. But here it is, the first time, I will come again. Hasn't that been the blessed hope of Christians ever since the early church, ever since he said these words to the apostles, that we know he's coming again? We can trust him in that, can't we? Didn't, he, didn't the scripture say he'd come the first time? Did he? Yes, he did. Exactly as he said he would come, he came the first time, he will come again. He's promised, he will. And when he comes the next time, what is he going to do? Receive us unto himself, that where he is, we will be also forever. That must have been great news to his frightened disciples that dark night. This is the first time he's told them he would be coming back. Death is the instant passing of the believer into heaven. Death is the private escort or the private presentation to the Lord. Paul said, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. That is one way that we will meet the Lord is through individual death. But here he isn't really speaking about that when he says, I will come back and receive you unto myself. Here for the first time, what is he telling them about? The rapture. The rapture of the church. Now they know nothing about the rapture. They don't even know about the church, really, at this point. But this is, as we look back and know now, now the rapture is a, you know, it's a doctrine that will be further developed in the epistles. But here, for the first time, he is speaking about the rapture. You see what he's doing. What would you do if you had invited guests over for dinner Friday night? Well, you would be preoccupied with them coming and you would get everything ready for their visit. If you were like me, you would make sure Connie had all her, the toys in the bedroom down the hall. <laughs> you would mow the grass. You would rake the yard. You would uh, make everything as perfect and as ready as you can. And then, of course, what else would you have to do? Cook. You'd have to prepare the meal. you get everything. All week long, you'd be preoccupied with your guests coming to visit. That is the state of Christ's mind here right now. He is, and even now, he is preoccupied with preparing a place for us. And also, think about this. Not only is he preoccupied with preparing a place for us, but he is preoccupied with preparing us for that place. So he's got two works going on. He's preparing us. You know... As you progress through life, you do get more and more prepared for that place. I know I talked to uh, Leslie. Leslie Garrett goes to this church. Bless her heart, she lost her, her her grandson, seven-year-old grandson, and her son both within a year. And she said, "You know," she said, "and her parents live in Fayetteville, and they're both in their 80s and are still alive." She said, That's just not the right order of things. But she said, you know, I never really thought about heaven before. I never really gave it much thought. But she said, now I can actually say I long to go there. When my mother died, for the first time, I knew I had somebody in heaven. You know, and he's preparing me for that place because now, you know, I long. And the more people we know that go ahead of us... It's prepare. It's all part of the preparation. And he's busy preparing our hearts so we'll really appreciate the Father's house when we get there. So he takes our minds off the here and now and puts our minds on the then and after, doesn't he? So that's what he's doing. That's the state of his mind here. Does it seem to you that God has deserted you? Well, if it does seem that way, nothing, absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. It did seem that way to the Lord's disciples, but nothing was further from the truth. It was for them it was hard for them to see what he was doing, as oftentimes it is hard for us to see what he's doing. We don't have his perspective, do we? Leslie doesn't understand. Why did you take my little seven year old grandson and the next year take my son in his thirties? We don't understand. We don't understand why your son was murdered. We don't we don't have all the answers down here. They didn't understand, but everything, everything was about his preparation for them. He was about to allow himself to be taken, tried, scourged, crucified, and it would all be for them, all of it for them and for you and I. He was preoccupied with his own men when he left them and when he allowed them to scatter from him. You know why he allowed them to scatter? He was protecting them. He didn't want them to be arrested. It was all about them when he allowed Peter to deny him three times because that was one of the trials Peter needed to learn about humility. The whole purpose of his departure was about them and about you and I. Um, isn't, isn't this the same comfort? Now he's talking about the rapture. Isn't this the same comfort that Paul ampli- amplified further for us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 18 when he wrote these words? For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with a trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord, wherefore comfort one another with these words. You can see that the comfort is not in the palatial dwelling, is it? It's not in the mansion over the hillside. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is, I have a father, and he lives somewhere. And there are lots of places to live with him. And I am going to come back to get you. And then suddenly, suddenly, there will be a shout, a trumpet. And the raising of the dead in Christ, loved ones, their bodies coming up and out and changed in an instant. We who remain changed in an instant and we will be caught up together with him where on the earth no in the air there's gonna be a meeting in the air in the great sweet by and (laughs) by doesn't that give you comfort and hope have you ever stood by the grave of a loved one in the lord and you know that's not the end you don't think about all that goes on under the earth, you think about the day they're going to come out of that earth totally glorified, and you're going to hug them again, Doris, your husband, all of you that are widows, you're going to see your loved one in the Lord again? Is that not true comfort for troubled hearts? If that's not, I don't know what would be. I can't wait to see my mama again. And one day... My other yeah, I don't have many ancestors up there when I got my mother. That's true comfort for troubled hearts. Well, I told you we wouldn't get through all the rest of it, but I knew that ahead of time, so but do read your notes, answer all of the questions, and then next week we're going to come and talk about the greatest I am statement that he ever made. "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Father, thank you for this lesson on how to comfort our troubled hearts. I pray that every one of us will remember these words, memorize them, and when we are stirred up and shaken and anxious about things that we haven't anticipated that have come into our lives and things that really are rather troubling in the here and now, we would hold fast to this promise that you have given to us, and you wouldn't have given it to us if it wasn't true. May we believe in you as we believe in God and believe that one day we will be reunited with you in the air and forever be with you and love you and serve you and worship you and be together with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, Lord, so much to look forward to help, help us to just prepare our hearts to one day dwell in the Father's house. We pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.